Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. You sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry, and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New King. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New King. And um, if you are visiting today, um, I want to tell you that normally, under normal circumstances, we do something called expository preaching. We go down through a passage, we go through it line by line, verse by verse, and we talk about what it meant for the people back then, and then what it means for us today. Today's going to be a little different. I am going to do what I call an application sermon. If you were here last week, you remember that Nathan preached on these exact verses. And so he built a foundation of what radical forgiveness looks like in the person of Joseph. And uh, towards the end of last week's uh, uh, service, right after communion, I went out in the lobby for a second, and there was a man in the lobby, and he turned, and I said, hey, and uh, I called him by name because I knew him, and the next thing you know, he runs to me, embraces me, and starts uncontrollably weeping and sobbing on my neck. I said, hey, um... Let's go over to the barn house and talk. And I said to him, what is going on? He said, that sermon, it hit me. I know I've got to forgive. And there's someone in my life that's hurt me, but I don't know how to do it. How do I do it? That's what the sermon is going to be about today. What forgiveness is, and how to do it, how to accomplish it. 
And this is really great because, as you guys, some of you know, I've been taking classes uh, in biblical counseling for the last couple of years. And the last two classes that I'm in have specific lessons and portions on forgiveness, how to help people through it. So what I'm going to do today is draw from that training that I've had and give you some tools to help you forgive. And there's three men, uh, David Powelson, Ed Welch, and Tim Keller. The training comes from their material, and I'm spitting it back to you in my own words. So it really comes from Powelson, Welch, and Keller. And it's just, it's just great stuff. And I hope you find today helpful. So let me pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you that we can be here this morning. I ask that you will help us hear about forgiveness. Father, we need to forgive because you forgave us. Help us with this this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. So normally at this point, I jump into the verses. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to refer to them. I am going to show you how the steps of forgiveness are in this chapter, because they're there. So first of all, if you haven't been here, we're reading through Genesis, we're teaching through it, and we're in the story of Joseph. And chapter 45 is the climax See, back, way back when, in chapter 37, horrible crimes were committed uh, against Joseph by his family. His father, Sh Jacob, showed incredible favoritism to him. His brothers hated him as a result. They despised him. The scripture says they couldn't say a peaceable word to him. And when they get the opportunity, they decide to kill him. They take the coat of many colors off him, they strip him, they cast him into a pit with no water, and they leave him there to die. And then one of the brothers says, hey, let's make a little money on this. Why don't we sell him into slavery, into Egypt? And they do. So they sell him into slavery. He goes off into to Egypt for many years, and uh, terrible people, terrible family. It's not good. 22 years pass. And Joseph rises to power in Egypt, and his brothers return to him to buy wheat because there's a famine. And they don't know who he is. And as we saw last week in the climax and the verses you heard this morning, Joseph shows radical forgiveness, and the family is reconciled. The whole point of this story about Joseph is to see the family reconciled. This broken, dysfunctional family, in the end, God works to reconcile them because that's who God is. He is a God of forgiveness and a God of reconciliation. And who are we? Hmm? We need to be children of God that show forgiveness and work for reconciliation because that's who God is. So that's the backstory. Now, um, when you look at forgiveness today, what year are we in again? 2024, I always get mixed up. I want to say like 1994, but that really dates me. Holy smokes. 
So in our culture today, when you look at the literature and you look at the culture and look at the media about forgiveness, there are three prevalent models for forgiveness that you see. They come up again and again and again. One, the first one, I want to tell you about each of them just briefly. The first one is called the therapeutic model of forgiveness. Counselors, if you go to a secular counselor, they will probably put this model onto you. Therapeutic model. The focus with this model is entirely on you. It's helping you get over your feelings of anger and... uh, Am I going to do this again? There we go. Hold on. Anger and bitterness. I think that's fair. There's no concern for the ruined relationship or for the other person. If you're in the therapeutic model of forgiveness, the counselor may say to you, he's not worth it. She's not worth it. And so there's no reconciliation. You work on yourself, you don't work on the relationship, and you have no thought. In fact, you're to get that other person out of your mind completely. That's what you hear. Another model of forgiveness is called the transactional model of forgiveness. Transactional. This is highly conditional forgiveness based on the other person suffering. It's punitive in nature. I've suffered, and now the perpetrator is going to suffer, and it's under my terms. They're going to do penance. They're going to make it up to me by suffering. There may be reconciliation in this model, but it's based on my terms of punishment with little grace. And the third model of forgiveness that you hear about all the time is the no-forgiveness model. I don't care how many times you apologize to me. I don't care how repentant you seem. I don't care what you do. I will never forgive you. Never. This is the cancel culture that we live in today. I will never forgive you. There's no thought of reconciliation, and there's no grace whatsoever in that. Sadly, these three models have crept into the church and we must reject them. We must reject those three models. The therapeutic, the transactional, and the no forgiveness model. So what do we embrace? If we reject those, what do we embrace? So next point, what is biblical forgiveness? What do the scriptures say? How do we understand it? What is the definition of forgiveness in the Bible? Well, it's interesting. The Bible uses... The image of debt, the image of debt to help us understand forgiveness. And debt, in this case, is a financial term. The image of debt. You with me on this? You understand? So Nathan last week talked about Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, there's this story, this parable that Jesus tells about the unforgiving servant. The servant owes an unpayable debt to the king. The king forgives the debt. In turn, the servant refuses to forgive another's debt. So this idea of debt is used when Jesus is talking about forgiveness. 
It's a financial term. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, in the old days, you said trespasses, right? Same word, same Greek word underneath it. It's a debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive the debtors. So this term is used to help us understand forgiveness. It's a debt, okay? What is a debt? Something of value is lost or broken, and a debt is incurred. Tim Keller always uses the example of a broken lamp. Let's say I come to your house for dinner, and after dinner we get fooling around like I normally fool around, and we're throwing the football in the house, and my wife is saying, you got to stop, and we break a lamp, and it's your lamp, right? Lamp is broken, there's no more light, and you've got to You've got to somehow restore the lamp. The question is, who's going to pay for it? If you're the homeowner, you say, Eric, yeah, I know. I, 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 I'm gonna, I'll pay the debt. I'll buy a new lamp. Or the, the homeowner may say, listen, you were throwing the football. You pay for the lamp. You've got to restore the lamp. You've got to pay the debt. You see how that works? Something's broken. Something's lost. There's light that's lost. Somebody has got to take on the burden of paying the debt to restore what was lost, the broken lamp. Who's going to pay for the broken lamp? There's a liability. A debt has to be paid. Who's going to pay it? Who will assume the liability to replace the lamp? In simplest terms... Forgiveness is giving up the right to seek repayment. In simplest terms, forgiveness is giving up the right to seek repayment. Forgiveness says, I'll see to the debt. I'll pay it. I'll buy the new lamp. I'll restore the light. Forgiveness says, I'll pay the cost to replace the brokenness. I'll restore what's lost. And isn't that exactly what the king did in the parable of Matthew 18? He said, I'll take on the debt. I'll pay it. I'll take it on. I'll suffer for it. I'll take it. And with that definition, we learn three important truths. First, Our forgiveness must be based on the king's forgiveness of us. Remember the parable. When the king forgave the servant, the servant went out to somebody that owed just a little bit and said, I'll throw you into prison. You've got to pay. Please forgive me. I won't. And the king comes to the servant and says, what have you done? I forgave you an infinite amount, can't you forgive this little bit? You see, that's the principle, right? That's the principle. The Father's forgiveness of you and your forgiveness of others are linked. The Lord's Prayer. Could you pull up Matthew uh, chapter 6, please? Give us this day our daily bread, kind of starting in the middle. Forgive us our debts, there it is, as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Your debts, it's the same Greek word. You see, your forgiveness of others is linked directly to the Father's forgiveness of you. They're linked. Our forgiveness must be based on the king's forgiveness of us. We forgive others because God has forgiven us. And if in your life you are struggling with forgiveness and you can't forgive, it could be as simple as I don't know how to begin, but it could be that you haven't experienced the forgiveness of the Father. See, one of the counseling methods that I use, because it's biblical counseling, if I see what's going on there, I'll say we need to, forget, to focus on the scriptures that talk about God's forgiveness for you. Once you can understand those a little bit more deeply, then you'll have the ability to forgive somebody else. You understand that? Second, Forgiveness is costly. Somebody say an amen to that. Yeah. It's one of the most difficult things that we can do in our lives. It takes an emotional toll on us. Forgiveness is hard. I cannot tell you how many people over the course of my ministry career have come to me and say, I can't do it. Can you help me forgive? It's very, very difficult, particularly when the wounds are deep, particularly when it involves family, a spouse in particular. Keller says, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for the debt, and they pay it back, or you forgive them and say, I'll pay the debt. I'll suffer it. I'll take it on. I'll pay it. Third, in the vast majority of cases, forgiveness takes time. We don't simply write a check and we're done with it, unless it's a small hurt. And what I'm talking about are the deeper hurts. You can't just write a check. You can't just forgive and forget. If that were so easy, why do people struggle with it? Because it takes time. It has to be done over time. And to use a financial term, we must make forgiveness payments over time. We go on a payment plan. And that brings me to the next topic. How do I do it? How do I forgive someone that's hurt me? A couple of very clear things to tell you. Number one, how do I forgive someone that's hurt me? How do I start? What do I do? It starts with a clear decision to forgive. You choose to forgive them. And your immediate response to me, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like forgiving them. I'm angry. I'm bitter. 
I'm hurt. I don't feel like it. Right? I don't feel like it. If you wait until you feel like it, it probably won't ever happen. And the weeks will turn to months, and the months will turn to years. And the only thing that will happen is your, your, your sense of, of uh, debt will kind of dim down, and then it's kind of a smaller thing. But you haven't really done anything to forgive them. You have to start with a clear decision that says, I will forgive them. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. You have to make the decision first. You have to grant it. You have to say, in my mind, I am going to forgive that person before I feel like it. In the midst of my bitterness, in the midst of my anger, I, through the help of God, am going to make a decision to forgive. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. You're angry, you're bitter, and quite frankly, you're not really even sure how you're going to do it. You must start with the decision in the midst of your hurt feelings. You make the decision and grant it before you feel it. And that decision should start with a commitment. Now, this is the real practical stuff, a commitment not to do three things, the three things that we always do when we're hurt, when, when somebody has, has done some kind of a debt or trespass against us. Number one, I refuse to make the person pay the debt directly to me. What does that mean? You say to yourself, I'm not going to seek vengeance. I'm not going to get payback. I'm not going to make them suffer directly. I will not hurt them with my words. I will not punish them. I will not enslave them. Often when we're hurt, we want to enslave the other people. We want to control them based upon the hurt that they've done. Your decision says, I will not hurt them directly. I will not do these things, and I won't avoid them. You notice we're going to get to it in a couple of minutes. Joseph didn't avoid it. He went to them. They had a discussion, and they talked. Avoidance does not bring reconciliation. Forgiveness brings reconciliation. So first of all, I refuse to make the person pay the debt directly to me. I'm not going to hurt them with words. I'm not going to punish them, all of that. Secondly, I refuse to make the person pay the debt to somebody else. So this is how we work. We're going to go to all our friends, and we're going to cut that person down. We're going to say, oh, boy, you know what they did to me. And we're going to gather a little posse. We're going to gather a, little, gather a little group on our side. And we're going to tell them all the things that they did to us. Isn't this how we work? It's so hard to not do that. And the next thing you know, the posse has turned into a mob. So the second thing, first thing, I will not harm them directly. I will not make them pay the debt to others. I won't form a mob. I won't try to gain sympathy. I won't gossip. I won't slander to other people. This is the decision you have to make. And third, 
I refuse to make the person pay the debt indirectly in my own heart. This is the hardest one. What does that mean? I refuse to play and replay the videos in my head of the hurt that's caused by the other person. So some years ago, I had a problem where I was hurt by somebody. And I remember week after week getting on my lawnmower and riding my lawnmower to cut the grass. And we have a huge lawn. It'd take about two and a half hours. And the entire time, I was playing the video of what the person did and what I'm going to say next time and how I'm going to get back to them. I was making them suffer in my mind. And I couldn't stop. There's something about it that we like. It's like when you have a canker sore in your mouth. Anybody ever had a canker sore? You want to stick your tongue in it, and all day long you're sticking your tongue, and you feel it hurts. Yeah, that's canker sore. Yeah, that's canker sore. Yeah, still there. Got a canker sore. It hurts. That's what we do with unforgiveness. That's what we do when somebody, we stick our tongue in it, and we keep doing it, and we play it again and again and again and again. And who does it hurt? It hurts you. And there's no reconciliation with that, Right? I refuse to play, replay the videos. I refuse to vilify them, to demonize them, to exaggerate the hurt they've done in my thoughts. See, that's how that cancer thing works. The more we replay the video, the more we stick, we stick our tongue in the wound, we exaggerate it. The next thing you know, they're vilified, and the little thing that they've done is now a big thing because we can't stop it. The other thing we tend to do is we root for them to fail. Well, I hope they get theirs. Right? Don't do that. You have to make that decision. You have to make that commitment. In your mind, I am going to forgive them, and I'm not going to do these three things. And I'm not, I'm not going to uh, make the person pay directly to me. I'm not going to make the person pay the debt to others. And I'm not going to... Uh, Make the person pay the debt indirectly in my mind. So forgiveness starts with a decision to bear the debt. It's granted before it's felt, and we make payments over time. Every single day that you get up, you have to remake that decision again and again. Yes, I'm going to forgive. It's not a one and done when the, when the wound is, is really grievous. You have to make it every single day. It has to be done over time. You're on a payment plan, right? Jesus says forgives, forgives 70 times 7. Yeah, that's a good start. It's going to take me a few months to get over this because it hurts. I'm going to make my decision to forgive. I'm not going to do these three things. I'm going to make the decision every single day. And then, if you begin down that process, what you'll find is your feelings will follow. All of a sudden, those feelings of anger and bitterness will start to diminish, and you'll be able to bless. That's the funny thing, how it works. We get it backwards. We want the feelings to be first, and then we forgive. you got to do it the other way. Forgive, and the feelings will follow. That's how it works. 
Okay, so now what? I've made the decision to forgive. I'm committed to not making the person pay. I'm going to pay the debt. I'm going to start making payments. How do I approach the person? How do I initiate the reconciliation? How do I do that? I made a decision in my mind. A couple of weeks have gone by. I'm starting to make payments. Every day I make the decision again and again. I'm going to forgive. How do I go about it? Number one, you have to go to the person and name the trespass, the debt, truthfully. Avoidance is not part of the forgiveness process and will never lead to reconciliation. Notice what Joseph does in chapter 45 in verses 4 and 5. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He sent everybody out. He got them alone in the room. And he spoke the truth to them. He didn't go through a four-hour discussion of what it was like in the pit and the time in the prison and all that. He just said it simply and truthfully. You hurt me. You did something terrible to me. This is what you did. And he says it truthfully. He doesn't embellish it. He doesn't go on and on about it. He says it simply and truthfully. So you go to the person, you name it. And then you must identify as a fellow sinner. You must show humility. We can't... So one of our tendencies is to go to the person with uh, a feeling of superiority. We go to them as a judge, and we get all high and mighty. Joseph never did that. He showed humility. We can't go. That will never lead to reconciliation if we think we're going to go and be better than that person. They're a fellow prisoner. And how do I know that, that Joseph went with humility? His tears. He goes and he weeps with them. Two times in this chapter, uh, verse, 40, uh, verse 2 of chapter 45, he wept aloud, the Egyptians heard it, the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then down in verse 14, he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. He had tremendous emotion. He weeps with them. He weeps on them. He shows humility and solidarity with them, right? This is what he does. In fact, if you go through this story of Joseph, you'll find out he weeps seven times. Good little study to do. Look at the seven weepings of Joseph. It's kind of fun. Don't have time for that today. So you've got to have the right attitude when you go to the person. It must be humility. And then the next step is you have to release the wrongdoer. You've got to release them from the debt, right? Remember the parable in Matthew 18. After the king incurred the debt, he released the man. He let him go. He no longer held him accountable. 
He's no longer a debtor owing something to the king. He's released back into his former position and his former life. He's released. Right? So you go to him, you talk truthfully. You have a spirit of humility about you, and you release them. Genesis 45, verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father. Say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. See, go get the old man. Bring him back. All of you together. Everybody. Nobody missing. We'll all be near each other, and I'll provide. So now the blessing part comes in. The reconciliation has happened. Now the blessing part comes in. You're paying the debt back with interest. Yeah? To use a financial term, you're giving more back than was taken away. You see, that's how God's forgiveness works. You're paying the debt back with interest. And you're aiming. Now, let's be honest about this. We're aiming for reconciliation. So if you could pull up Romans uh, chapter 12, please. There's a whole section here on forgiveness and and reconciliation. Uh, Verse 14 in Romans 12 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You can see where I drew some of the teaching from that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Right? Live in peace. Live in harmony. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is all about humility. Keep going. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, now verse 18 is really important. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you can reconcile, it does depend upon the other person. They may say, no, I will not reconcile with you. That's not your, that's not your choice, right? That's not your fault. You don't have to own that. If they won't reconcile with you, okay. We see this in the parable. The man was not repentant, and he went out and held the other guy to prison. And bad things happen. As much as you can, try to reconcile. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, and it goes on, etc. If the person isn't repentant, that's a different story. And Matthew 18 also has some advice about that. The three-step process. You go to the person alone. You bring another person with you. You bring it before the church. If they won't hear the church, then you say, okay, we can't reconcile. And there's distance. But you do whatever you can to bring peace. And sometimes it doesn't work. That's, that's the bottom line. Now, a word on repentance People get hung up on that. We, we want to see repentance in the person that hurt us. Remember Joseph? Starting in chapter 42, he tests his brothers to see if they're the same person or not. He tests them. He checks. He wants to see, are they repentant? What does it look like? Repentance is a change in direction. 
You change from one thing to the other. When you repent, you, you say, I'm not going to live my life this way anymore, and I'm going to embrace Jesus and live my life according to him. Repentance, when we see it in others, it should involve three things. A confession to God, a confession to the wrong person, and a concrete plan for change. Somebody's hurt you. That person should realize that it's God they've hurt first and foremost. It's God they've wronged and disrespected and hurt. Repentance acknowledges that first and foremost. It's God that they've sinned against, and they must repent and, and apologize to God. Secondly, they need to confess to the wronged person. They've got to apologize to you. The perpetrator must clearly acknowledge the wrong committed, its effect on you, and apologize. Back in chapter 42, verse 21, they say to each other, the brothers, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They acknowledge it. You've got to acknowledge the hurt. The other person has to acknowledge the hurt and apologize. Apologize to God. Apologize to the person hurt. And then there must be a plan for change of behavior. You have to have a concrete plan. It's not enough to say, oh, I'll be better. Better how? Better what? It has to be a concrete plan. It must involve a change of behavior that you can see. That's repentance. Luke 3.8, John the Baptist tells people, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he gives an example. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham our father. See, that was the sin of pride. Don't say that anymore. Don't do that anymore. Don't go and say, our faith depends upon our fathers. It has to depend on you. Repentance means showing something that changes. For an example, let's say uh, my sin is I'm angry with my spouse and I blow up in anger. How do I show repentance? I go to God and confess it. I go to my wife and say, I am so sorry that I have blown up in anger. And I did it yesterday, and, and I am so sorry for the hurt that I've caused in you. And here's how I'm going to change. First of all, we're going to look at the circumstances in which I blow up. That's going to be helpful for both of us. Maybe it's when we're driving in the car. Maybe it's when we have friends over and you say something I don't like. Okay, when we're driving in the car, here's my commitment to you. I am going to do my best to not get angry. And when you tell me how to drive, I won't get angry. I'm going to do my best, right? I mean, this is a little simple thing, but it's the concrete. You have to have a concrete plan with real things in it. So repentance, you repent to God, you repent to the person, you put together a concrete plan. And our response to that plan must be seasoned with grace. The person says, I'm not going to do that anymore. None of us are perfect. We're all going to slip. And when you slip, the other person must have grace for us to say, yeah, I know you've been trying really hard. You slipped that time. Let's talk through it, and I'll try to be better. You have to be reasonable about it. Genesis 45, 24 says, They sent his brothers away, and as they departed, Joseph said to them, Don't quarrel on the way. I know you guys aren't going to be perfect. 
one last word of advice, don't quarrel. It has to be practical and, and, and realizable. Now, certainly, there's definitely non-negotiable violations that happen when it comes to sexual sin and abuse. I'm not talking about that. In those cases, you have to get and be safe and be out of that environment and not put yourself in an unsafe environment. That's not what I'm talking about. And that brings me to a word on trust. Trust. When you say to somebody, I forgive you, it doesn't mean you trust them. The two don't automatically go together, right? You have to see the change in them. You have to see their repentance. You have to see them putting together a plan. I forgive you doesn't mean I trust you. Forgiveness means a willingness to reestablish trust in the perpetrator. Trusting someone is a process over time. Trust must be earned. Joseph tests his brothers over time. Are they safe? It takes time to do that. Until a person shows evidence of change, we should not trust them. You have to see the change. To immediately retrust somebody could possibly enable them to take advantage of you and sin against you again and again and again. So you have to make the commitment that the retrust work is starting, and it takes time to do that. You have to see evidence, right? So a little word on repentance, a little word on trust. Finally, to close things out, why do we forgive? Why? Number one, to maintain community both inside the church and outside the church. Forgiveness and reconciliation leads to blessing for Joseph's family and for Egypt. Uh, Verse 16, it says, uh, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And they come out with, and Pharaoh comes out with this wonderful blessing. See, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation is what the purpose of this story is. And God's purpose for Israel is to be a channel of blessing, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. And you see that acted out here in this chapter. Forgiveness, secondly, and reconciliation bring life, not death. The actress Carrie Fisher, uh, Star Wars fame, if you know Carrie Fisher, She passed away a year or two ago. She made this comment, which you see in the the press quite often. Bitterness is you drinking uh, poison, hoping the other person will die. Bitterness brings death. Forgiveness and reconciliation bring life, not death. At the end of chapter 45, old uh, Jacob hears the news. And he says in verse uh, 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, when he said them to him, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. 
Forgiveness and reconciliation brings life, not death. Third, we have a vocation. We have a work to do. Can you pull up 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God who was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses, their debts against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are ministers of reconciliation. That is our job to do, our role to do. And if God has given us that role, we must do it not just with the gospel, but in our life in general. And speaking of the gospel, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it brings us to the cross. It brings us to the cross where our enormous, infinite debt of sin was paid in full. Jesus paid it. He said, I will pay the debt. I will take on the cost of your sins, and I will pay it with my blood to the very last. And we know what Jesus said on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If Jesus can forgive like that, can we begin to forgive like that? Can we make that decision today to forgive people in our lives and to put into practice some of these things? If you need help with forgiveness, if you need some resources, please talk to me. One of the best out there is Tim Keller's, his latest book, the book, last book he wrote before he died of pancreatic cancer. It's called Forgive. Get that book and read it. It's really great. We forgive because Jesus forgave us, because God forgave us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we can think about what Jesus did and that we can model what he did. Help us, Father, to accept your forgiveness. Help us, Father, to in turn forgive others that have wronged us. Help us take on the debt. Help us pay it, Father, so that we can be reconciled. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.